Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the team at Project Health Monitoring. PHM provides digital solution for industry, sport, and education, allowing you to focus on well-being, performance, and academic engagement in real time. But more on that a little later in the episode. And welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome back for another week of Challenges That Change Us. I hope your new year's kicking off with a bang. Behind the scenes, we are definitely well and truly into full steam ahead. I've already presented three workshops on personality profiling for teams this month. And next week, I'm running an intimate evaluate your mindset workshop for a group of leaders. The diary is filling up fast. So if you are interested in working together individually or for us to come in and work with your whole team, DM or email me this week. Today, we have a very special guest. I want to introduce you to Ben Law. He very bravely gets on here to talk about men and fertility, a topic I have never heard another man talk about is one of those experiences that is felt and often not shared. Ben is a rural strategic coach and host of the Financial Bloke Wealth and Wisdom podcast, which is for farmers and graziers. After a situation of medical negligence, Ben was told at a very young age that he would never be able to have children. It was impossible. He experienced the full colours of the rainbow, feeling ripped off, the heartache, the growing investment of IVF, consistent challenge, uncertainty, and isolation. Ben and his partner never gave up and they now have a beautiful little miracle child. Ben discusses the importance of knowing how bad you want it, how far are you willing to go for it, and how hard a road are you willing to walk down for it. He offers up some very valuable advice for men, partners, and friends. And today I have a trigger warning for fertility, IVF, the mention of suicide and a suspected heart attack. Let's welcome Ben onto the podcast. Welcome, Ben, to Challenges That Change Us. I'm so excited to have you on here today. Yeah, welcome. Um, oh, welcome is what I'm saying. I was usually me in the interviewing chair. So, yeah, <laughs> thanks very much for having me here. And, Ben, usually we start with the animal question, but I was thinking then it's it's because originally when I spoke to you, I was going to get you on as an expert and then we started chatting. I was like, so how do you feel about actually telling your personal story? Because so we're going to have to get you back as, a, as an expert in the financial space. But, you know, today we're actually going to be going down a completely different track and talking about something that's a little closer to your heart today. So thank you for giving us that opportunity for coming on. My pleasure. And it is rather weird being in the other side of the table, so to speak. And Ben, I love to start every interview with asking the guests what animal best describes them and what is it about that animal? So uh, I thought about this a lot when you told me I needed to be prepared for this. And I think the best animal to describe me, I wish it was an owl, you know, nice and wise, full of plenty of wisdom. But I I think uh, a better description of me would probably be a border collie dog. 
Yeah. What is it about a Border Collie? Well, I thought about it a lot. I've got a very, I suppose you'd say, a brain that goes very quickly. I like to work hard. I like to do a lot. I'm always looking for some other opportunities. I'm always chasing things down and I can never sort of sit still. So, yeah, I I own two Border Collies myself and they definitely resonate with me. You know, it's funny you should say that because Sam is our editor. So, big shout out to the guy behind the scenes, Sam the Podcast Butler, who does all of our work, but he said to me, he said, Arles, you've got to meet Ben because he is such a hard worker. That was his description. He's like, he works so hard. He reminds me so much. You guys remind me so much of each other. And then we got on and started chatting and I think it was like two hours later, we're like, okay, let's just book in a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think that's true. And and unfortunately, when you, you get two people in a room that really, really energize, it's like having two border collies stuck in, the, yes. in a small backyard. Yes. Oh, it would have been so funny if someone had a camera like the arms are flying with the descriptions and the talking. We were on the phone, everyone, by the way. It wasn't wasn't on video. But um oh, and so Ben, let's start with, because I still don't know a lot about your background. Maybe if you could tell us a little bit about where you've come from and what's kind of shaped you your career to date. So, Ali, I've come from the land. I grew up on a cattle property in northwest New South Wales, a little town called Corindai, which is about an hour south of Tamworth. And with my family, it's uh, I think my dad's the uh, third generation on the farm. I would have been the fourth. I went off to university like you and I went to Armidale and studied an agricultural economics degree. And after doing that for four years, didn't really know what I wanted to do and fell into banking for a while. Hated that, Ali. It just wasn't suited to me in any way, shape or form. So, I did that for a while and then I fell into financial advice and I ended up spending just on 20 years in financial advice uh, working predominantly with business owners and farmers and graziers. Now, I did that for sort of four years after uni and then I headed to London and which was a hell of a, a shock for me. I went from you know growing up on the farm, going to college in Armidale and then doing a little bit of work and then ended up right in the middle of London working for a hedge fund. And we were managing, or I was part of a team that was managing $37 billion at that stage. That was about 2003, 2004, which was a whole lot of fun. I essentially went over there and traveled for a year and worked, tried to work as much as I could to earn as much as I could to then go traveling. And then my dad, well, I decided to come home. I said, after a year, if I'm jack of the busy life in the middle of the city, I'd come home and I did. My dad got sick, helped him out on the farm for a while and then went back into financial advice and did that for probably, I think that's another probably 16 years. And I worked for a number of people, Ali, and eventually, I think it was 12 years ago now, I started my own financial advice practice. I tried working with other people and uh, couldn't find the right personality fit. I couldn't find the right values fit and the right people I wanted to work with. So, I went out and started my own business, which was a much to my wife's disgust for a short period of time. And though I shouldn't say that, she she was incredibly supportive. But I just came home one day and said, that's it, I've had it. I'm going to do my own thing. And, and I had my dad's words ringing in the back of my ears, which is, if you haven't made it by the time you're 40, son, give up. <laughs> and he was always saying it tongue in cheek, trying to get me to actually have a go. And yeah, I think I was early 30s. And yeah, I just came home, bought a laptop, bought a filing cabinet and bought a printer and started working in my home office and then got to 10 years later and I had a team of people working for me and and a fairly successful financial advice practice. Wow. And then just to sort of tie it off, there was a little bit of adversity there. I had a, a suspected heart attack in 2020. Luckily, it wasn't a heart attack. It was just a heart scare. And I have a six-year-old daughter, which we'll go into today. Oh, she's six now, but at the time she was four. And- 
I came home after the suspected heart attack, spending 24 hours in intensive care with cardiologists, et cetera. And I looked at my daughter and I thought, you know what? She's, she's not seeing the best of me or all of me. And I got back on the horse a little bit after a couple of days. I sort of settled myself down and thought, you know what? I've just got to get healthy, lower the stress levels and get on with things because I can tolerate a high level of stress. And I thought my body could, but it, it can't. Not as high as I thought. And yeah, and then uh, two weeks later to the day, another friend within our, or uh, an acquaintance within the friends group rang up and said, you know, one of so-and-so's employees, he had the same thing happen to you, same time of day, two young kids, and he dropped dead. And um, I remember walking out of the lounge room after having the conversation, looking at my daughter and said, that's it, I'm out. And I went from the absolute pinnacle of my career, I was at my absolute peak, we had a highly successful business. We we're winning awards. We had more clients than we could poke a stick at to actually making the choice to walk away from that and do something else. And I took 12 months off and said, I don't know what I'm going to do now after I'd sold my practice, sort of had a bit of a what I call a trial retirement alley. And then after about three days, I was bored. Um, <laughs> but I promised my wife I would take a year and I took a year. And then I think it was about a month off a year and I came home and said, I'm going to start a podcast. And she just looked at me and laughed and said, well, I'm not starting it with you. Good luck. And <laughs> that was about uh, just a little over a year ago now. We got the podcast up and running. I now do strategic coaching for farming families. And yeah, I'm living a, a great life. You know, that was we had this discussion at the start as to what adversity that we should be talking about. And and what you've just spoken about there is is huge. And what so many women and men struggle with is when they're in a role and they could absolutely love it or they could not like it, but they know that they're running on high, right? They're using every bit of energy they have, every spare moment. They might be brilliant in the space, but at what cost? And so having to weigh that up and having the courage to walk away and start something new is massive, especially when, you know, I don't know if this was your experience, but your identity's wrapped around that. People know you as that. You make really good income. You're providing for the family. And, you know, we did discuss to, at depth whether we should talk about that specific thing because I think our audience would love to hear about that. But we're actually going to go into something different today before we, we do go into that, though. Just tell us about your podcast because you mentioned that. And I think <laughs> I've jumped on and listened and I'm not great with money. I My husband does all of our money side. And I was listening. I was like, you know what? This might actually help me <laughs> get interested because I loved it. It was fantastic. Do you want to tell the audience about your podcast? Yeah. So, the podcast is essentially called The Financial Bloke. It was, a, I suppose you'd say, a pseudonym I developed seven years ago now when I was doing financial advice. I remember I could only help a certain number of people, Ali. You know, I, I only dealt with 50 families. That was, I had a very boutique, high value, small, small number of clients. And there was something in me burning to say, I want to do more than just help 50 families. Now, I, I accept that the 50 families I'm, I'm helping has a like a ripple effect. Mm. It has a bigger impact on society. And I started The Financial Bloke, was, which was just, a, I suppose, a blog. I wrote a column in the Queensland Country Life, which is a, the Queensland's uh, number one ag newspaper. And I just used to do videos, just educational stuff. And so, when I started the, the podcast, it was all around my background, which was essentially wealth. Yeah. And that's why it was called Wealth and Wisdom. And it's uh, specifically targeted for the, the farming and agribusiness space because, again, that's my background. And so, it's all about helping people grow, protect, and transition their wealth. And the underlying theme's all about helping farming families or agribusiness, rural families, uh, become more prosperous intergenerationally. 
because we've all heard the analogy it takes two generations to make it and one to lose it and that's mm -hmm. a major problem in society you know two generations work hard the third loses it so it's all about educating and empowering people to do better and it's not just money it's about wealth and wisdom which is the uh, tagline and so who would your average listener be is it male female in their 30s 40s do you know no but what i can tell you is when i did financial advice it was very heavily female orientated mm. which was quite interesting i mean it makes sense when you you actually dig into it because in most businesses you know, on the land or in agribusinesses it's generally and I have to be careful. Don't let my husband hear this. Feminists, Hang on, can we pause? I know, I know, are you going to you going to give it away am, that I he am. shouldn't be doing all the books? <laughs> well, I'm just I'm just saying there's usually someone who has to do the, do the books and the money and who's responsible for it, and then someone that's operationally. And in farming, it's generally you know dad's out in the paddock and mum's in the office for a certain period of time. And so yeah, mostly it was a female. But I think on the podcast, it's actually quite quite varied I, I mean I've got people that are that are in their 60s listening that are coming to me and saying you know we need to do something about succession and retirement and then we've got the younger generation you know I spoke to a 28 year old yesterday that's saying look I've got to make my mark on this world I've got to do better because I can't rely on just coming home to the family farm and, and yeah. being one of four children that's going to try and make something of a small pie so yeah. yeah it's a real diverse bunch of people but the people that listen are generally what I like to call doers, not ditherers. Mm. The ditherers don't bother, the doers do, and they're the ones that are listening, Ali. Well, if anyone in this podcast, anyone out there wants to go and have a listen, we will pop it in the show notes as well with a link directly over to it. But otherwise, after this episode, jump on and have a listen. Like I said, I listened and I was hooked and I can't wait to hear more. It'll be very valuable for me. No one is allowed to tell my husband about this podcast though, okay? So that's my one rule if you're going to continue to listen. <laughs> do not tell Pliny. <laughs> And Ben, like we've mentioned already, we did bring you on to talk about something a little closer to your heart. And you mentioned earlier that your daughter's your miracle baby. Why do you call her that? Well, she's an only child and she should never have, I suppose, come into existence. So the topic we're going to be talking about is fertility. And my wife and I were told by many specialists in the fertility field that we would never have children. So our daughter is absolutely best way to describe it is a miracle baby. She should never have come into existence. So we had some fertility issues. When you say fertility issues, is that something that's come up recently or do you, do you want to take us right back to the start? Yeah, yeah. So plenty of people go for, through fertility issues and some people know beforehand and others find out later. And sometimes I'd say it's with the bull um, and sometimes it's with the cow. It's got the fertility issues. And in this case, it's with the bull. That's me. And so I knew for a long, long time that having children was going to be impossible due to, I think the best way to put it is medical negligence when I was a child. Not enough time to go into that today, but essentially I was told you would never have children. And my, as I said, my wife knew that and we went into that process. And so when my wife and I had that conversation she accepted it, which was quite interesting. So if we go back to the start when my wife and I first met, I believed that I couldn't have children. And so that was a conversation we had to have early in the relationship. And mm. in her credit, she said, fine. She said, I, I want children, but I'll accept that. 
and we moved on. But once we got married and got along in life and, you know, we talked about kids and I love kids. Like I'm very, very fun Uncle Benny to all my nieces and nephews and I love dealing with kids and I love helping kids. And a lot of the reasons I was successful in financial advice is when I'd work with families, it wasn't just with them, it was with their kids to prepare them to take over. And my wife said to me, Ali, she said one day she popped up and she's an introvert. So she's the exact opposite personality to me. She's an engineer by trade, far, far smarter than I'll ever be. And she came in, she goes, look, I know you said it's impossible. And I know the doctor told you it was impossible. She goes, but I don't believe it. And I said, well, love, you shit out of luck. You know, this is, this, this is, this yeah, is the facts. This is the reality. And that's where, and then we started a journey, Ali, which um, was an interesting scenario. We went and saw a doctor. He said, look, there's some new technology out there which we can go into or we don't need to, which might allow you to have children. And he said, but it requires some tests. And, of course, that for me was a huge – that's probably the, the the hardest part of the whole process was to go from it's impossible to, oh, now there's some hope. Maybe there is. Yeah. And then we went and had a, had a procedure, did some tests, and the doctor came back and said, look, it's a slim chance, but it's possible. And – that's when my wife looked at me and she said, I told you. <laughs> I'm just sitting here as you're saying that and I'm thinking about what it would be like sitting in a doctor's surgery because how long had you been told that you couldn't have children for before you got the possibility? Yeah, I, I think oh, since I was in my early 20s. Yeah. So I'd known. This was when I was roughly 35, I think, Ali. So 15 years. So 15 years of thinking, absolutely no way, this is not possible. You create your whole future and life around not being able to have children and now you're sitting in doctor surgery with the potential possibility that you might. Yeah, yeah. And it was a big mind shift because I'd thrown all my energy into knowing that, you know, that, that wasn't a possibility and not mm. not wanting to think about it and then throwing myself into my career and became really successful and, mm. well, my, my my that's the way I see it in my head anyhow, but became really successful. And, yeah, it was a hell of a change. And then we went through the first round of IVF and if anyone's done IVF, it's, it's not exactly fun. And the doctor essentially came aside and said, you're wasting your money. Give up. I know I told you you could. But it's impossible. And you can imagine the flip oh. from you can, can't, you're never going to, to, oh, we think you can, to let's give it a go and no, sorry, you're wasting your time. That was the worst. Yeah, absolutely. How did you both react to that information? Because I'd imagine it could have even been different between the two of you. Yeah. Look, my grandfather who passed away not last year, the year before, 90, 97, he said to me, you're in strife, young fella. He said, you're pig-headed and your wife is stubborn. And he couldn't have been more true. And I think for me, it was like a complete, well, you know, why did I waste my bloody time? I was mm. pretty angry about it all. I felt I felt ripped off. Like I yeah. felt like the doctor had just said, yeah, let's give this a go. Because it was, I think it was seven to $10,000. It yeah. wasn't like, oh, we'll just go do a blood test and it's done. It was a big thing. And essentially what they did, Ali, for those squeamish people listening, is they had to take a biopsy from me. And so that took me three months to recover from. So when you say a biopsy, I know we're sort of talking around it, but I think we should just name it. Like, do yeah, you want absolutely. to explain what that looks like? Because I mean, some people are going to go through this and, and I think it really gives value to kind of the experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially, they if any body from the land or has anything to do with horses or remember, if you've ever seen a, a needle that they give a horse for penicillin or a, or a bull, mm. take one of those and stab you in the testicles multiple times to take core samples. And then they take that and that's what they use. So it took 
as I said, three months to heal and recover from that. Physically or psychologically? Physically. No, no, yeah. psychologically was fine. Physically was the was the problem. If anyone's been kicked in that area, multiply that by about a hundred. So and yeah, and I had to go through it through in local anesthetic too. So that was actually that was the most traumatic part was that procedure was just hell. And you know, when when my wife talks about what she had to go through, like we both have a good understanding yeah. of how each other and, you know, what women have to go through. So I always say I, I sort of get what it's like. Yeah. And also get what it's like on your own because not many men have gone through that. So, you know, at least as women, we can band together in that labour and that, you know, there's a camaraderie in that and there's a whole history of stories around that. But for men, I'd imagine very few men even talk about it if they get it. It's not something you sit around the kitchen table and talk about. God, no, 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 and absolutely not. I mean, the fertility discussion never, ever comes up anywhere, and we'll get into that a little bit later, but absolutely, yeah, it was. And look, my wife essentially said, let's just think about this for a while. She goes, but I don't believe him. And it was only lucky that someone I knew who I who through work, she had a baby, and she called him one day of the office, and somehow her daughter came up, and she said, oh, she's an IVF baby. And short end of the story, they had the same problems as my wife and I had. And she went and saw a doctor in, she did all the research. She found the best doctor in the whole of Australia in her mind, interviewed, I think it was something like 15 different doctors, found this guy and he managed to get a result for them. So my wife said, well, we're going to go again. How was that for you? Like I'll just pause you for a moment there because you'd yeah. been on this big roller coaster. When she said to you, we're going to go again, were you like, yep, strap me in, well, let's go? Or were you like, cautious around that because of when you said before that massive drop when you got told that he said, Sorry, there's nothing we can do. I think we talked about the alternatives and the alternatives were a motivation to give it another go. Okay. You know, I wasn't willing to talk about the other other options. That was where I hit a brick wall. I just couldn't get my head around it at that stage. And so I was willing to go and see this doctor and essentially he, he sat down and he said, look, he was a brutally honest like he was a terrible bedside manner but he was very good at what he did and he just looked at us and he said this is going to be tough it's going to cost you a lot of money he says but if you're patient enough we'll get a result and he fulfilled filled us with confidence and essentially in the end we went through essentially five years of IVF and a lot of heartache because we got a lot of no's 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 oh maybe no 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 until we finally got a yes And when you say you went through five years of IVF, a lot of the listeners won't have been through that process. What does the process of IVF look like? Yeah, yeah. Well, the first thing is the drugs. Like I was on some pretty hardcore drugs, which the doctor said to me, oh, there's no side effects, but there were. I essentially had to cycle through these really heavy fertility drugs, which effectively, I have to be careful saying this, my wife would kill me, but I essentially had PMS every three weeks. Yeah. And I was as cranky as a cut snake. I just, not rage, but I had no no patience for things. Were you aware of that at the time? Oh, yeah. 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 yeah it was obvious. Yeah, it was obvious. I just wake up cranky and I just say, I don't know why I'm cranky, but I'm damn cranky and I had no mm. patience. And that was for three years I had to go through that. That was, that was huge. So, it was just mm. every three weeks and every lady listening is going to go, well, mister, you know, you get to experience what we experience. And I get that, but I wasn't. I wasn't mentally primed for it, Ali, I think is the problem. Or it's not something that you've had a part of for your whole life since you were 12. Just because someone else experiences it doesn't take away your experience in the moment of something that's brand new that's there. You know, I think that 
you also have that laid with we might not be able to have children and we've tried and they've said no and like it's not as simple as just waking up being cranky and thinking oh this is just pms like <laughs> there's a whole suitcase of emotions sitting in that waking up feeling frustrated yeah without a doubt and then my wife was on similar drugs she was on drugs which were up and down and up and down and we had to drive to see doctors and then you'd go through a procedure and then the doctor would say yep how did it go two days later no sorry we didn't get any embryos it was a complete failure you need to wait two months again then go again and you'd write out a check for $10,000 again and off you go. And I think in the end, we'd spend about $100,000. A lot of that was covered by Medicare. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to, but but we outlaid up to $100,000 to do that and with no guarantee of a result. The other thing was also is we couldn't talk. We didn't want to talk to anyone about it. So nobody knew. It was just my wife and I, I think I let my parents know because they, they knew that we couldn't have children. So I'd let them know we were doing something, but it was literally just her and I. We kept it really quiet and nobody knew. So it was five years of dealing with all these things just for ourselves. And when you look back now in hindsight, would you do it that way again or yep. would you, yeah. And why do you say that? I think the problem is most people don't understand what it's like going through yeah. it. They don't understand. I mean, even people that have gone through IVF themselves and had it compared to us an easy journey don't understand how difficult it was because we're talking about just continual no's the whole time. Fail, 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 maybe fail, maybe fail which was really hard. So trying to find someone to talk about that. And it's just the it's just the conversations, Ali. It's just people asking you, oh, how's it going? You know, what's happening? I mean, it's bad enough that you got to your mid-30s and people saying, when are the kiddies coming? You must yeah. be going to have kids soon. And then people would celebrate saying, oh, we're pregnant with our second one. And, mm. you know, it's we just retreated to into ourselves and just dealt with it. I wouldn't recommend that for everyone, but for us that worked. Mm. This is a shout out to all the teachers, parents and principals that may be listening. We all know I'm a big advocate for improving your mental health, but how can you know when to act? PHM, otherwise known as Project Health Monitoring, provides a versatile, safe and secure digital platform that allows students a means to communicate current and emerging issues in real time. The platform provides educators with data to take targeted and timely action so that their students feel known, valued and cared for. PHM takes away the days of second guessing. With children increasingly connected via technology, the PHM approach allows students to initiate a conversation without having to raise their hands. Students need to feel connected and empowered by being directly engaged socially and emotionally. For a free project health check on your school, please click in the link provided in our show notes. This will enhance your students' well-being, performance and their academic outcomes. Now, back to the show. And were there other things that you used during that time? Because five years is a really long time. Like if we just pause for a moment and consider how long five years is of dishing out the cash, having no after no after no, I just, oh, can't imagine. Yeah, we're pretty tenacious. And there was plenty of times, Ali, where both of us thought about giving up. You know, we sort of balanced each other up where, you know, I'd, I'd go into fairly, I'd get fairly upset about things and Sarah would say, no, come on, we've got to keep going. And then she'd hit a hole and I'd say, no, come on, we've got to keep going. So we kept each other up. But we did everything. Like we got fit as hell. We went completely gluten-free, completely dairy-free, no caffeine, virtually no alcohol. And that was a massive change in diet. 
because the doctor told us every little thing counts mm. because we're such on the fringes of everything. You've just so our whole lifestyle changed as well. So, you know, you couldn't have that morning coffee. You know, you couldn't, you know, the food you normally ate was so, so changed from what I was used to. So not only did we, we couldn't talk to people about it. Everyone else was having babies around us. You know, our diets completely changed and you couldn't tell people like you'd say, oh, look, you know, we're gluten free now for a reason and we're not drinking at the moment. And people would just look at you and and we lost friends over that, you know, friends mm. that especially in the guy area that said, you know, if you're not going to be drinking, we're not going to invite you to go do things. So that became really socially isolating. And that was, um, you know, even family that would say you're not drinking anymore at the moment. Well, we're not going to invite you to things because, you know. That's the, the culture we're, we're in. So, yeah, it was very, very socially isolating. And all-consuming as well as the yeah. piece that you're missing. Like you wake up thinking about it, you have breakfast thinking about it, you miss your coffee thinking about it, you go for training thinking about it, you go to bed thinking about it. Do you know what I mean? Like five years of all-consuming thought process around is this going to be the time that it works or can we do another month of this? Yes and no. It's it's funny. It peaked and troughed, mm. I think, because what happens is you'd get this right, oh, we've got to prep for this. So we're taking the drugs and Sarah had to have injections and, you know, we're trying to keep everything perfect. And then you get a no. And then it was really lucky. We had the business. We started the business. So everything went into the business instead. So that was our distraction. And so our whole life revolved around making our business the best we could possibly make it. And in hindsight, that's probably a major reason why it became so good in the end is because that's where all our energy went. So it was very much a roller coaster, I'd say. But it was probably more than anything, Ali, it was very isolating would probably be the right word. Yeah. And tell us about the moment when you found out that she was pregnant. Well, it was pretty weird actually because we, out of the whole five years, we got three embryos. So to put it into context for people that don't know, my understanding is generally uh, someone will go through IVF, they'll collect some eggs, they'll fertilize them and they'll get seven or eight eggs or two or three eggs. That's the sort of success story. Well, we do a, and get none. And so we went through five years and we got three embryos the whole time. And the first one was just about rubbish. They said it wasn't that great, the quality. So we put it in, failed. Then we had two. We finally got two, which was just an absolute miracle. The doctor said, I can't believe we've got two. And one wasn't great quality and one was reasonable quality were his words. And so we threw the great quality one, implanted it, and it didn't stick, and then we froze one, and we just left it in the freezer for six months, and we just didn't know what to do. I just said, "What are we going to do? You know, we need to make sure everything's perfect before this embryo gets implanted." And I don't know what happened, Ali. I don't remember why this happened, but we implanted the embryo. We decided to the day before we moved house, which is utter madness. Well, it's because you. Don't do things in halves, right? It's like, what have we got to lose? What, like, we've got to keep trucking, you know? Mm. Absolutely. And what it did was it distracted Sarah. So she was not obsessing over it the whole time, which is because it becomes obsessive. You're not going to tell us that you missed the pregnancy and then you found out when she was like 12 weeks pregnant. No, no, I wish, I wish. (laughs) No, no, we tell me that. I'm going to fall off the chair. (laughs) Yeah, we knew knew straight away. So, yeah, so we, we, she, like literally, we moved house, we put the embryo in, moved house the next day. And then I think it was seven or eight days later, we did a test from memory. And yeah, it said pregnant. We're like, holy dooly. And then everything just from there went perfect. So if Sarah hadn't have been in peak health yeah. and that baby hadn't carried to term, we probably wouldn't have ended up with our little miracle baby. Mm. So yeah, so it was, it was, it was a hell of a shock. I still remember the day, but you know, 
I, I, I don't think we got excited about it. Sorry, that's not right, Ali. We did get very excited, but we didn't want to get excited because five years of yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, all you've got is a little stick with a positive test on it at a week in. I mean, so much can go wrong. Yeah. Between then and, and birth. So we were just the whole time holding our breath more than anything. It's so, um, and I, I don't know because I, I have not been in this experience, so it's really hard for me to speak from this space. But when you're telling that story, I'm like, God, I hope this it gives some hope to some people out there. But at the same time, I'm aware that sometimes people need to call it, you know, and say that we've done everything we can in this moment and we can't keep going. But I do hope that your story is something that sprinkles a little bit of hope on someone that's in the middle of it right now, really giving everything that they can be giving to this situation and, and knowing that it is possible. You do. And and it all depends on your personality types too. Like mm. we were pretty dogged about things and we are pretty stubborn. We always say, oh, we're very lucky people. Now, if you hear that story at the end, you think you're lucky, but you know, for five years, you thought you were very unlucky. Yeah. But, yeah, you do. I mean, we, we went back and tried for a second one and just got nowhere. Like, we just got no, 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 no. And in the end, the doctor just looked at us and said, you've got one. Be grateful. <laughs> Which we called it at that stage. And, yeah, you yeah. do. You have to. I think for me, it, we just weren't ready to say no. We were very, very close, like right at the end. If that embryo, little Sophie, hadn't have stuck, I don't know if we'd have gone back again. I don't know, because we, we'd had the conversations, is this it? Mm. So, yeah, you do have to and there's financial constraints and there's distance constraints and health constraints. There's a whole lot of other things you've got to think about. But the reason I talk about this is because a couple of people talked to me when I was going through this that had been through IVF. I know I mentioned before that we didn't really talk to anyone, but there was a few occasions where things popped up and I listened and that gave us a bit of hope. And for men, you know, we in society, we have a lot of conversations about women and fertility and how difficult it is, but you never find any discussions about men and mm. the issues they have to go through. And there is no support and there is no, there's no conversation about it. And, and I just want to raise one if we've got time, Ali. We've got loads of time. Yeah, which is the reason why I talk about this. I'll just put you into the situation. So my office was in the centre of Brisbane. I had a couple of friends that were professionals in the you know banking and finance and legal space and I got invited along to a lunch one day in the centre of Brisbane and they're all in their suits and ties and I'm not a suit and tie sort of guy so I'm in my normal shirt, a pair of jeans and boots. Although I am a, I was a financial advisor, I should have been in a shirt and tie. That wasn't the sort of guy <laughs> I was and I turned up for the, for the conversation and one of the guys' wife was pregnant and the whole conversation got around this and you, you can imagine these guys have had a few beers, you know, blokey sort of blokes and and- Hopefully, people don't get offended at hearing this. And one of the guys says, oh, yeah, you know, my wife's pregnant. It was, you know, we decided to have a child and three days later, she's pregnant. And the other guy goes, you know, I just have to shake it near my wife and she's pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the other guy who was my mate was sitting there. He knew we'd been through the IVF. I'd had that conversation with him over a beer one day and he almost cried when I told him the procedure we had to go through <laughs> seven times. And- he sort of cut the conversation and just sort of, oh, guys, you know, uh, not everyone gets to deal with this and was really funny about it. And I said, no, 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 I want to tell the story. Is it okay if I tell the story? Because I want to tell the story about the procedure I went through because yeah. for guys, that's the thing. They sort of look at it and don't get it. And I remember I told the story and, and you know, everyone's crossing their legs and, oh, my God, I can't believe you went through that. And my mate pulled me aside later on and he said, why do you tell people that? you know, this whole fertility thing. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he said, well, as a bloke, don't you keep it private and personal, the fact that you were virtually infertile? 
and was essentially in his nicest way he possibly could was saying, don't you feel like less of a man because you couldn't just, you know, wink at your wife and she's pregnant? And that was a real eye-opener for me at the time because I knew I'd felt a little over the year, you know, earlier on felt, uh, I don't know the best way to describe it, I felt very self-conscious about it. Yeah. But I'd managed to balance out my life and, and you know, realise that that's not what makes a man a man. But that was the underlying theme of the table. And they all, you could see them, they looked at me that I went through this procedure seven times we discussed earlier, like, holy dooly, you know, that's tough to do that. But they looked at me with pity but for that exact reason. So I suppose what I'm getting at, Ali, is I think we need to have more of these conversations publicly, which even this is this is a you know, I talk to people about this, but doing it in a public place is a little different. But, you know, there's still that stigma attached. You know, if, if a lady can't have children, there's a fertility issue, you know, everyone rallies around them. And I know there's some negative connotations potentially attached to it, but it's much more accepted when it's a guy, guys will run and hide. And I do know of a couple of scenarios I've come across in the last 10 years where the guy actually killed himself. And I had a friend in Rockhampton where her husband killed himself and I talked to her about it afterwards and she said, yeah, we're going through IVF. It could get a child and he he was the issue. Oh. Yeah. And so so he, he he did that. So so I suppose what I'm getting at without being too deep is if I can have this conversation and one person hears it and yeah. goes, wow, it's okay, I'm not the only one, or can go, you know, the doctor said no, but maybe I should be a little bit more tenacious Well, I've done my job. And also I, my jaw's dropping at the fact that like and my anger's coming up because I'm like, you don't choose that. Like you didn't choose your fertility status. It's You have no control over that. And to think that someone can indicate that you're less of a man from it, I know that it would happen, but it, like I'm just sitting here and my um, – my blood is boiling. <laughs> like, I'm just like, this is not okay. You know, yeah. like it's not okay. Yeah. And and my comment back was, yeah, but like I had a daughter. My daughter was there at the time. You know, she was, I think she was about one at the time. I said, yeah, but I'm a, I'm a good husband. I'm loyal. I'm trustworthy. I don't drink much. I don't go out partying with the boys and causing problems. I'm a good provider. Like all those sorts of things. I said, that's what makes you a good person, not whether you can actually just father children right off the the bat. I mean, but that's still a lot of what the underlying tone for guys is. Now, I'm not saying they go out and they spread that around, but that's that's the way I experienced a lot of people felt about it. And and look, I I know there's a lot of guys have gone through this because I can tell you the IVF doctor, he said when I went in for the procedure and and with this guy in Brisbane, it was it was under general anesthetic, thank God, not mm. local. But he said, I do like seven or eight of these a week. So it's not like this is an un- and doesn't happen very often. This this happens frequently, but nobody talks about it. So what would you say to someone that's listening right now that is going through it that is a male in a very similar situation to you? What words or advice would you have for him? That's a good question, Ali. It all depends where they're at. I mean, if they're going through the IVF or looking at going through the IVF, I'd say be tenacious and do everything you possibly can to get a result. And that means change your lifestyle, find the best of the best of the best, don't half-ass it and be tenacious. If someone's been going through it for a long time is think about what you want out of life. And if it does get to the point where you can't get a result, you have to live with that and you have to find a way to live with it. 
but with regards to people that are maybe dealing with infertility and just not feeling happy about it, the obvious, Ali, which is, you know, live a good life, be a good person. That's what makes you a man, not what everyone else would potentially portray. Mm. And what would you say to all the boys sitting at the table that don't have fertility concerns? What advice do you have for them? Lucky them. <laughs> for me, it's more about that person I knew in Rocky. It was one of my mate's brothers. And it's more about them than the rest of society. Like the, the guys sitting around the table, so be it. Once they know the story, they're a lot more yeah. accommodating and they understand. It's it's just part of society. It's like men behave badly and men say things and do things and become masculine when they do, which is fine. That's just the way it is. But it's what I'm worried about is that poor bugger that would go into a depth of depression or self-harm because they thought that it's their fault. I think that's probably it. It's not their fault. It's just is what it is. Mm. That's probably what I'd probably say to people is it is what it is. It's the cards you're dealt. It's like you're born and you've got a disability. Well, this is what you've got to deal with in life and you need to just get over it and get on with it. And choose how we talk about like choosing how you play the game. Like these are your cards. It's up to you how you play it. Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. And look, Sarah, my wife, I think she's a unique personality and I and I say that lovingly, but I, I, I say, we say it a lot, lot. I think, look, here's the advice I give my nieces and nephews. As I say, choose your partner wisely. Your choice of spouse will make or break you. Mm. And I think just in this scenario, if I hadn't have been married to Sarah, I don't know whether I would have ended up with a child mm. just because the right person, the right focus can be all the difference. And the question I have, and, and this is not about Sarah, I'm saying what did you need from your partner as you were going through this? Like what is it that you as a man sitting here today needed from your partner as you walked through these really hard times? Not pity. Mm-hmm. Pity was the worst ever. <laughs> My wife probably would have made a good surgeon, we always say, because <laughs> she's very direct. So definitely not pity. I was never looking for pity. And then again, my personality type's a little bit different. All I wanted was an attaboy. A what? An attaboy, you know? No? You're doing well. Yeah, so a pat on the head. What did you call it? An attaboy? Attaboy, yeah. What does yeah, that you know, even you... mean? Where does that even oh, come from? I don't know where I got that from, Ali. Yeah, attaboy, good boy, give him a pat. <laughs> uh, so, so, it's just, it's, so for me, it was just to be able to say, we're on the right path. We've got this as a team. She never, ever made me feel like I was the problem. It was always, we have got a problem here to fix. It was never about me. She never pressured me to do what I shouldn't have been doing. So if I'd go and have a few beers when I probably shouldn't have been having a few beers, she never pressured me or anything like that. But yeah, definitely just not pity, but reinforcement that we're on the right path. Mm. And what's been the hardest part coming on today? Because this is not your normal (laughs) conversations that you have in a podcast. Were you nervous? I don't know whether nervous is the right word. Ali, apprehensive might have been. Yeah. I was just a little bit concerned about not explaining myself very well because I haven't, like, I spent 20 years doing financial advice and providing, you know, strategic help for families. And so I know that inside out, this is just something I've got to talk about. So I haven't Mm. thought through the structure of how to deliver the message. So I was a bit concerned that it might not actually be really that valuable. It's just a story about something I went through. Yeah, but that's where the value is. Ben, that's, you know, in you being able to step up to plate and have this conversation with me, that's a complete stranger. 
to this outside world where there's going to be someone out there listening to this very conversation, either going through it, thinking about going through it, have just been through it, has a mate going through it, has a brother going through it, you know, that might just pick up one tiny sentence that you said that may make all the difference. I think so. And look, this is not therapeutic for me at all. I've moved on, so to mm. speak. So there's no scars there as far as I need to talk through this to make, you know, and put, tell my story to the world to make me feel better. It's mm. definitely not that. It's more along the lines of what you said, which is if one person listens to this and it changes the way they view this, because it is, it's it's not about what what's the problem, it's the way you view it, then that's a good result. So it's essentially a few people helped me on the journey, which made a big difference, especially using the lady that I mentioned before that gave me the introduction to our IVF doctor. Because she had the conversation, that changed our life. Yeah. It absolutely changed our life because if we hadn't had that conversation with her, I don't know whether we would have proceeded. So if today someone listens and, you know, can reframe it in their mind and think, right, there's a path forward, that's awesome. So the, the only other thing is, is I, I was a bit nervous because I don't want to scare people off the process because when I talk about what we went through, it's pretty tough. Like there was no easy journey with it. But what I can say is the vast majority of people who go through IVF have a much, much simpler outcome. And also, I guess the conversation to have is what's it like for you now? Was it worth it? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. Would you do it again? A hundred times over. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd do it if it was twice as hard. Mm-hmm. Would I change anything? I don't think there's anything I could have changed because it was just a journey we had to go on. You know, I've got this great little girl that's, you know, she's six now, just her first day of year one this year. She's amazing. And she's a little bit of me and she's a little bit of a mother. The only regret I have is we couldn't have got two. Mm. You know, so many people said we did IVF, put two embryos in and got twins and we we were praying for twins. <laughs> Or quadruplets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which would have been awesome. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I definitely wouldn't. And, and there's one other thing I want to say too is you've got to be careful of the doctors as well, Ali, when you go through this. This is just something that was really on my mind is my doctor had terrible bedside manner. You've got to do your research. You've got to know who you're dealing with. You've got to build your mental resilience. You've got to be tough. I essentially had to fortify my mind against all the problems that were going on. I mean, the doctor looked at me one day and we got a no and I said, geez, that's disappointing. And he just looked across the table and he said, well, we are scraping the bottom of the barrel with you, aren't we? Yeah, when you're in the most darkest, hardest moment of potentially yeah. what you've ever been through and then someone says that, it is. Like how do you how do you receive that comment? Yeah, yeah. And and I'm not an angry, violent man, but it's the, it's the one time in my life I felt like leaning across the table and punching him in the face. Mm. <laughs> that was probably the the lowest point I got was when he it went from being a medical problem that we're going to overcome to became personal. And that mm. was the first time it became personal and it was that was horrible. And you will run into experiences where people say the wrong thing, they like to be nice and how's it going and um, you'll get there or maybe you just need to try a little bit harder. Um, you know, you'll get people, you, you just got to fortify your mind and you've got to really work out uh, do you really want, how bad do you want this? Like how bad do you want this result? And I wanted it bad because the doctor told me I couldn't have it. Yeah. And ever since I was a little kid, if someone told me I couldn't do something, 
it was the mo- biggest motivation for me ever. So my wife said to me when I started the financial bloke, she said, you can't make anything out of that. You've got too many other things on your plate. And I remember saying to her, challenge accepted, love. Yep, I needed you to say that exact thing in this exact yep, moment you. and watch me fly. <laughs> yeah, she knew what she was doing. And yeah, you've got to work out, am I willing to go through all of this? And it's tough on the relationship. It's very tough on the relationship because there's mm-hmm. no respite. How bad do I want it? If you want it, you got to do it. Do what's required. Do the hard work. And when you get no's and you get bad news, you, you know you take the kicks in the guts, and they are kicks in the guts. Like there was some low points, but you got to take the time, feel it, live it, and then get up, get back on the horse, and go again. Otherwise, you'll never get to where you want to be. And I think that's true for anything in life. Yeah. And Ben, sitting here as someone that hasn't been through it, as I mentioned earlier. There's been a number of things that you've said that I was like, oh, God, I've said that or, oh, my God, I've said that, you know. And so if we don't know you're going through it, if the people around you don't know you're going through it or even if they do know, we're probably never going to get it right with what we say either, you know. And so are there things that you found helpful from people in your outside world or are there things that you could say to me, I'll just next time be aware of or perhaps say this or, you know, because Mm. so many times in this interview I was like, oh, God, I did that, you know? Mm. Of course, yeah. And it's not until you go through it that you realise it's a problem. And I think it's very personal. You know, some people can react to different things. So, uh, for me, if people said, hey, do you want to talk about that? That was really helpful because then it was almost like the giving permission because most of the time you don't. You don't want to talk about it. That's all you talk about in your relationship. And then someone yeah. comes along and says, oh, how's everything going? You know, have you had kids yet? Oh, we thought they'd be coming along soon. And you say, no, we can't have children. Then it goes quiet. And the other thing is I remember a friend at university and her dad had passed away when she was young. And her mother said the worst thing about it was – people would avoid her because they didn't want to have a conversation with her because they didn't Mm. know what to say. And I'd probably suggest if you know someone's going through it, don't necessarily avoid them. Give them the space to be able to talk if they want to. And if they don't, let them go because it is all-consuming and it's all you talk about and all you think about. And sometimes it's just good not to even have to talk about it. Yeah. And and some of the things that we've said on previous podcasts in this space is, you know, if you're not sure, sometimes just a text message saying I'm thinking of you, you don't need to respond to this, can be enough to connect in with someone that's going through something, any kind of adversity, you know, whether they've just lost someone, whether they're trying to have children, whether they're in the middle of chemo, you know. it's. I think we often find ourselves in positions where we don't have the words and we don't know what to say and be okay with not knowing what to say, but you can own that space. You can still let people so. know you're there for them. Without a doubt. And look, it's giving them permission not to reply. So, mm. you know, for example, and I've done this many times afterwards, is I'll say to people, whether it be an email or a text or a voice, I quite often have voicemails as, hey, we're thinking of you. I just wanted to send the message, you do not need to reply. Mm. And I, for me, that was always a really good thing because then that gives them permission. Because when you get those things, like, oh, I'm thinking, how's it, go- how's it all going? And it's like, oh. Now you know, I've got to, what no, do I say to well, that? <laughs> but now, what do I say back? Shit, this sucks, you know, or whatever it might be. Whereas it's no reply required. Yeah. It's quite often really good. And then if the person wants to reply, fantastic. If they don't, and you've got to be happy with that, not 
no reply required then oh you know why didn't ben reply to me i know i said no reply required yeah you just got to be comfortable in that space and ben something i'm aware of that has happened to many many of my friends is that they are so excited about having the baby and then go through the labor the baby comes home and then things get really challenging for a whole number of reasons whether they get postnatal whether a baby has reflux whether a baby's unwell whether the partners are on different pages about how they want to parent and what i've seen and experienced for my friends is that it's just this bottoming out process like it is like no one warns them about you can want a baby so much it doesn't mean coming home is going to be easy like it can be so challenging do you have any comments or any experience or in that space or anything that you want to say to the audience to the listeners yeah yeah look look again there's always people worse off than we are um, I think doesn't matter what happens like my story here is nothing compared to what most people go through in life this is just my little journey but yeah we we had a tough gig we bought bub home and it turns out she had a really bad case of silent reflux so we didn't know what it was for about three months so uh, my wife got mastitis and started losing a milk supply and bub didn't sleep for longer than about 20 minutes for, for, for months until we finally figured out what it was and yeah we had a business that was had an industry was going through a massive change. So I was trying to manage the business. We had no family support. We were on our own in the big smoke. And yeah, my wife with mastitis and a child that didn't sleep um, would scream every every 20 to 30 minutes. Anyone that has had a reflux, I had three reflux babies. And yep. it's kind of like what you were saying earlier. If you haven't been through it, it's a complete world you don't know about. But anyone that's mm. listening right now that has a reflux baby's heart will just sink, right? Because it's oh, tough. Yeah. Mm, absolutely, especially when you don't know what's wrong. Um, that was the silent reflux was the problem we had to, and we ended up self-diagnosing it, and not the doctors. But yeah, and, and I th- and I think again at the time it's very hard to think practically like this, and anyone going through it now will laugh and say that's easy to say. But I just remember we used the same strategy, which is okay. What are we dealing with? What did we wanted this? We chose this. What can we do to get the best possible result we can? And that was we just tried everything. We researched. We ended up sleeping her on her tummy, which all the doctors said not to. They said that's a cot death problem. We did all the research, read all, Sarah read all the bloody medical papers on on the risks and worked out the risk wasn't as high for, for the bub as, as we thought. Um, and we ended up finding a solution for ourselves, which is what we did with the IVF quite often and did a lot of research. So I think, and, and it doesn't change. Like I, if, the comment I'd probably make, Ali, is we have one child, some people have five. Mm. Um, we have a healthy child, some people have a sick child. There's always going to be challenges. And to you, they're always going to be big mm. because you have no perspective. You don't have perspective of what the person down the road's dealing with. And yeah, that mental toughness, you just got to focus on that. Try and try and make sure you're mentally as strong as hell. And look, the one thing for Sarah and I is we found we started going to the gym a lot more. And Sarah, my wife, who doesn't run much, um, I always laugh and say the most I've ever seen her run was to the mailbox. And uh, she got into CrossFit. And so I decided to join her later on. And doing some hard, heavy exercise was what mentally got us through the reflux period, the first six months of, of childhood. But yeah, it was tough. My advice to anyone is, is just remember, someone's always got it worse than you. That's probably yeah. what I'd say, Ali, if, if you asked me that and I was being more concise, someone's always got it worse than you. And I think what we're hearing there, Ben, is you have a whole – you might not be aware of this, but what I'm hearing is you have a whole toolbox of strategies and that's your mental toughness that you're talking about when you say I need to pull back, I need to pull back on my mental toughness, we need to regather, refocus, we need to look at what 
what are we doing here? What's the outcome we're trying to achieve? And and then you're pulling out these things and being like, well, let's see if this works, you know, let's see if the fitness works and let's see, let's do some research and see what we might be able to find here. And I think that's really important when people are going through adversity, whatever the adversity is, it's like, let's just take a moment. It's okay to press pause and kind of sit back and think what's going on here because we can be so in it and this you know I know when I had reflux babies I was so in it I couldn't see past it so taking that sort of step out that bird's eye view and going what's the problem here in in this point in time that we want to work on and what are all the possible solutions that we could look at like let's just put them all on the table and then let's pick one and try it because Hmm. it may work for you it might work for the next person it might not work this time but worked last time but it's like Give yourself permission to find the space, to find the gap, to step back, to elevate your view so you're looking down on it and thinking what's actually going on here. If you need someone to soundboard with, if you need to pull on your friends or a professional or your parents or whoever it is but be like, what am I not seeing here? What angle have I not looked at this from? And then start at the beginning and I think you've used the word a few times throughout this podcast, refocus, like what are we going to do next? Now with that information, what's our next step and what are we going to try and how are we going to know if that's successful or not? And we used to trick our mind a little bit too, Ali. Um, We used to have a catchphrase, we're lucky. And so we'd always say, look, what's the best strategy? And say, remember, we're lucky. This is going to work out. And that was the attitude we always had. And and I'm not saying we always believed it, but we said it. And the second thing which works for me and it may not work for anyone else is I have a propensity. You get caught up in your own problems and they are big to you at the time. But when you take that perspective and think, well, you know, if someone in a third world country and I'm talking about, you know, my child's back chatting me or I've, my child's got reflux, well, at least my child's eating. She's not, you yeah. know, starving to death or something like that. And that was super helpful for me. It reframed things all the time. Yeah. And I think, you know, you did touch on this in the podcast and I've certainly touched on it in other episodes is it's not necessarily don't feel it. Like you Mm. can feel it, but then you need a strategy. Once you feel it, once you accept where you're at, once you're like, oh, like I'm feeling pretty crappy at the moment about this Mm. situation. I mean, it's all right. Now we go into that reframe or now we go into the attitude of gratitude or now we put in a strategy. And so, You don't have to just dismiss everything. You don't have to compress everything. You can feel it. You can acknowledge it. You can absolutely be like, this situation is really shit. Now let's kick into what are we going to do about it? So let's have a look at that picture or let's have that mind shift or let's go to and see a doctor, whatever it is. And and I think it's, again, that perspective is, is, is it really as big a problem as you mm. think it is? And again, in, in the strategic coaching side of things is we'll sit down with families around, say, succession, and they'll think, oh, my God, this is just undoable. We're never going to be able to achieve this. This is just amazing. And then they sit down with someone for five minutes, have a conversation, and, and the other person looks at them and goes, look, you've got problems for sure, but, you know, there are, you, you can surmount all those. They're just problems yeah. that you've got to work through. And they yeah. sit back and go, oh, so the problems aren't as big as I thought. Well, you know, that also helps dramatically in some circumstances because we you can have a propensity sometimes to overblow how significant a problem you're facing. And that's just the human emotion. And I'm not suggesting that there's, there's scenarios that people are going through that are hell. Absolutely. But I'm guessing there's always someone worse than you somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then it's probably a good time to have this conversation, which is exactly why I have it at the end of the podcast, because we do, by the time we finish these stories and, you know, even I'm feeling a little like, oh, like it's a big story that you've told us here today. I know you've <laughs> potentially minimized it a little bit, Ben, <laughs> you know, by saying, but it is huge, right? Like I just want to acknowledge that space because not only did you go through it alone, you weren't able to talk about it. It took up a huge chunk of your life. You didn't know you were going to get the outcome that you were going to get. It put a strain on the relationship. You had a business. Like I could sit here and absolutely tell you why what you went through was massive. But for the audience, what we do is we always ask a question at the end of the podcast so that we can all together lift ourselves and feel a little lighter and get into our adult brains again um, and hop out of that emotional space. So my question to you, Ben, is who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh? Belly laugh like he all the way down the hall belly laughing. So uh, you, you're probably going to guess, but my daughter, <laughs> she makes me laugh all the time. She's got, we always laugh, she's got my smart mouth and her mother's intelligence, so we're raising an evil genius, but she <laughs> makes me laugh all the time. And it's not what you'd think. What makes me laugh with my daughter is her brain thinks so differently to most people's. She came in when she was five and she said to me, Dad, I've been thinking a lot today. And I said, what have you been thinking about? And you know you know what five-year-olds think about. She said, Dad, you know how magma comes out of a volcano was lava? And I said, yes, sweet up. She goes, what happens if the earth runs out of magma? Yeah. <laughs> and things like that. So she's always coming up with those little things like, how cold is in space, Dad? And is that colder than the refrigerator? Yeah. It's that philosophical kind of questioning, isn't it, when they come up with it and you just think, yeah. whoa, what is going on in that brain of yours? Without a doubt, without a doubt. She, she comes up with it all the time, things like that. And I think it's a combination of her um, being an only child, so mm. she's exposed a lot, lot more to the adult world, which I, I you know, has, has its pros and cons. But she also sits in on a lot of business conversations, so she hears us talking about, yeah. you know, the business and the podcast, and she's in, in inquisitive about stuff. And you know, just one last one. She came in one day and she goes, "Dad, I'm going to start a business, and it's making jetpacks." Jetpacks, you just strap them to your back, and I can fly like a unicorn. I said, "That's fantastic." I said, "You're gonna you're gonna make one for me." She goes, "Oh, Dad, I'll sell it to you at cost, and I won't make a profit, but I'm not giving it to you for free." <laughs> well, this got a little entrepreneur right there in your hands for sure. And it always makes me laugh. And she looks at me. She goes, "Why are you laughing at me?" I said, "I'm not laughing at, at oh, you, love. I'm laughing with you." I said, yes. "This is this is so much fun." And I think I'm I'm laughing in a way of saying, you know, if we hadn't have, you know, just went through hell and back and been as or my wife hadn't been as tenacious as she was because she was the most tenacious, we would have never had this little creature on no. the earth. So yeah, that's what makes me laugh. Oh, thank you so much, Ben, for coming on and finding the time. I've really enjoyed sitting here and talking to you this afternoon. It's definitely opened my eyes up. I've never had a conversation I can't think of ever with a man about fertility. And I'm someone that asks all the challenging questions and, you know, does all the probing. So the fact that this is the first time I'm having that conversation really scares me. Well, it's not a conversation you hear very often, Ali. I mm. have to say that. I, I mm. can't say I've ever sat down with anyone that's been through 
what I've been through um, to be able to have a comparative story. Mm. So thank you. Thank you for being so open, so raw, so honest, and just so real. My pleasure. Absolute pleasure. And as I said before, multiple times, if it helps one person, it's been well worth the investment. What a conversation. I don't know many men that would come on this podcast and talk about something so personal. So thank you, Ben. Don't forget to check out his podcast, The Financial Bloke. It is absolutely valuable, full of great tips and hacks. If this topic today was helpful for you as a listener, let us know. You can either leave some feedback on the platform that you listen to Challenges That Change Us On, so whether that be Spotify or Apple Podcast, wherever it is, it's usually around the same area that you rate the show. There's a spot for feedback or you can directly DM me. Challenges That Change Us is here because of you, so I can't tell you how valuable your feedback is. I hope you guys have a great week and I will see you next Monday. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.